Hi, welcome. Stories that unite, opinions that divide, and everything in between. This is the Transatlantic Book Club, where books have no borders. I'm Lee, and I'm joined by Nathan. Nathan, how are you doing? Hello. Doing well, how are you? Good, good. Uh, excited to get round to this book. It's been quite quite the uh, quite the ride getting here. Um, I'm quite sure. Do you remember how long we've been on this book? It must be four or so months in the making. Yeah, I feel like I had a lot of traveling in between for some reason. Alaska came up and then I'm sure there was something else. Family vacations, things like that. But those are all just excuses. I, I should have been reading the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to keep momentum uh, dragging a book over a certain period of time. Sometimes I find it easier to sort of smash through uh, a book in its period. This was probably a difficult book to go and 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 sort of smash in in, in detail in a in a particular period of time, uh, for reasons I'm sure we'll we'll sort of explore. To take us just a sort of bit of a background, perhaps about this book and set the scene. Let me just do a bit of a quick quick job on uh, on setting up, setting this discussion up. So, Alison. Uh, uh, sorry, Alison. Uh, Hilary Mantel, Wolf Hall. Uh, this is this book takes us in a journey through one of the most tumultuous periods uh, of English history. Uh, in this book, the book that we're looking at today, we're going to capture the intricacies of ambition, love, and the royal powers uh, and the royal power struggles of the Tudor court. This is a world where decisions are driven as much by personal passions as much by political expedience, and where the course of history was often determined in whispered conversations in candlelit chambers. When we think about the Tudor period, for many of us, we think about uh, images of Henry VIII, of course, larger-than-life presence. Everyone's seen that uh, picture where he looks sort of morbidly obese, perhaps, by modern standards. His many wives, and of course, his split from the Roman Catholic Church. But as Wolf Hall kind of goes into... The narrative there is infinitely richer and more complex than perhaps popular culture uh, depicts. Uh, surprisingly, perhaps at the heart of our tale, I'm going to say, is actually Anne Boleyn, the enigmatic, enigmatic and ambitious woman who captured the heart of King Henry VIII. Her rise to become Queen of England isn't just a love story. It's entwined with the very fabric of English politics, religion and society. Anne has a sharp intellect and she's Protestant leanings. She's not just a queen, but also a symbol of the shifts that happen with England uh, at the time. Of course, alongside her, manoeuvring through the labyrinthine corridors of power is Thomas Cromwell, the, who is more or less the main protagonist of the book. A figure is often relegated to the shadows in popular retellings of his time. Cromwell was a master tactician, as we see in this book, navigating the treacherous waters of the Tudor court, balancing the fickle moods of King Henry VIII with the ever-present threats from Rome and uh, from society and beyond. Through his eyes, and certainly over his shoulder at least, we get a unique lens into the day-to-day operations, the subtle power plays, and the larger-than-life characters of this Tudor period. Uh, This book isn't just about, perhaps, those characters either. It does paint a vivid picture of 16th century England, where the the population grappled with the implications of the Protestant Reformation, where heretics are burned, and the Crown's decisions ripple through every layer of society, 
from the grand halls and the palaces uh, to the humblest of homes. So as we sort of talk through this story, I invite you to keep in your mind and imagine the sort of, you know, the candlelit chambers of Hampton Court, the streets of Tudor London, perhaps the echoes of whispered secrets in the halls of power. It's a tale and a story that's sort of been told many times, it should be said. But as you'll discover, there's layers to this story and there's subtleties and perspectives uh, that continue to uh, surprise. So with that, uh, let us begin and take us to a time of velvet gowns, clashing swords, uh, as we discuss the world of Tudor England. How's that for a setup? <laughs> that was very well done. You may have just set the uh, bar a little too high for the rest <laughs> of what's going to happen. But uh, but yes, uh, very well done. <laughs> I won't even ask if you did that by memory or if you just wrote that down. I, uh, but that, I was just perfect. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> uh, so that, we'll keep it a secret. That gives a bit of a flavour of the sort of background of what this book is um, uh, is trying to achieve. I, I think, sort of just to start off, a question I put to you, because we will have very different sort of reading and experience of this. This For is obviously sure. a book about the Tudor period and its sort of significance, I suppose. How much before this book did you know, honestly, about the Tudor period? How much did you know about Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and perhaps Thomas Cromwell? Yeah, and the reason why we will probably have very different experiences is because uh, Lee comes from a land known as the UK, and I come from a place called America, or the United States. So he's probably got a bit more of a feel for sort of the background and, you know, can probably do a lot of more comparison between Tudor period and modern UK life, and I'm sure he's taken history classes Back in his schooling years, but in any case, so I think fortunately for me, I did, I had a sort of a stint of like a a British history obsession some years back. Uh, My memory's not, still not not perfect going through all the different kings and this and that, but few, two or three books that I read that I think really helped bolster a lot of background knowledge for reading this book, which I thought was really helpful. Didn't, you know, cover everything, um, didn't cover the entire you know, the, every single detail of what Tudor li- life is like, but some of the books, uh, like uh, starting with the Plantag- Plantagenets, uh, I think the guy, the author's name was Dan, Dan something, can't remember his last name. Dan Snow. He also, Snow? Is it? I don't know. We can look it up a few. But it's called the Plantagenets, and uh, Lee might come up with the last name. Um, which went really from like the early, early, like way before what I think we would recognize as that Tudor period, but then sort of went in, uh, then uh, came the War of the Roses, which I think did focus more, go in my memory, but I think that was more uh, what we could call like the Tudor era. But this had more to do sort of more general broad history going through the ages, not a whole lot of focus, focusing in on <clears throat> Tudor life. Um, and then also I read uh, Henry VIII, which I thought was even really useful for this book, just kind of getting to know Henry from more of a uh, raw historic perspective. That was by Stark, Starkey or Starkley? No, David Starkey, yeah. I think. Okay. Uh, which is a bit more, well, much more focused on 
Oh, no, Henry VIII. So I got to know, you know, figures like um, Henry VIII, of course, and Anne Boleyn and Catherine, his wife before Anne Boleyn. And I think there were a few other wives after Anne Boleyn. <laughs> um, I uh, learned some of the names that popped up in this book, uh, like um, Tyndale. Um, so, and sort of his, the dynamics of his character and what that meant between like Catholic and Protestant and bringing in uh, illegal documents uh, into the UK, that being like the the New Testament written in English. Um, so your question was, how much did I know? I, I would say more when it comes to what the, the significance of the tour or what the Tudor period was. I wouldn't say I know a whole lot in detail, but I was fortunate enough to have like sort of a broad, at least historical um, knowledge based off some of the books that I read in the past. Hmm. So probably more than your average American, but still not a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so this is a period that is uh, a staple period of uh, British history taught in history classes in school. So every student will learn about Henry VIII. There's probably a debate to be had at some stage about education about whether that will always continue to be the case. I was thought some things that we learn in history could be sort of quite seem a bit randomly uh, chosen. I guess his influence is is, uh, is huge in a lot of ways, but often felt like it was chosen because it was an easier subject to teach than, say, the Wars of the Roses uh, or the English Civil War. Um, so it's an interesting thing to it, but nonetheless, every every person in the UK knows who Henry VIII is. More or less, every person will know about the six wives. Very few would be able to tell you them all in uh, sequential order. I'd be I'd be testing myself if I tried to do that. <laughs> Catherine of Aragon is number one. Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, number four, I think. And then I get confused about the last ones: Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr are the last two. I think I can't remember those those ones later on super uh, super well, uh, but suffice it to say that most will have some at least passing understanding and probably most familiarity with Anne Boleyn uh, more than probably the uh, the other ones. Uh, she's known, of course, as the sort of the woman for whom Henry built an entire new church for. Um, so uh, yeah, that's probably the reason. That's probably a certain amount of background. But even in that, I mean, the names of say. Uh, Cardinal Wolsey, Cromwell. The names have sort of come up in the history classes, but they are sort of secondary, perhaps to to Henry's own sort of ambitions and uh, the machinations of uh, of religion and, and so forth. Um, so, so we'll come in again with that different sort of sense of knowledge and perspective. Uh, that mean we'll probably notice certain things different uh, to uh, to each other. No doubt. <laughs> I, I think the other thing to sort of go in before we get into to it is about how Hilary Mantel sort of goes about showing this period. I, I guess the first question is like, how do you end up writing this book? Like, I guess to some extent, writing the the lesser known histories is a quite a common technique mm. these days. The voice of those that weren't perhaps the centre of the attention at the time, or, of course, the kind of micro-histories that we get sometimes, like the history of the world through salt or something like that, for example. So you'll get, sure. like, 
so this is an interesting take on a well-known period. The, the sort of the narrative question or the, the question for the book is, how can you take a subject that will be extremely well-known at least to a British audience that's very, can be quite tired topic, to be honest, in, in domestic circles because it's very familiar, and breathe some life into a topic that can otherwise uh, has the danger of being a bit stale? How can you make a book about something that happened 500 years ago feel relevant, engaging to an audience uh, uh, many uh, centuries later? And I suppose that's the central challenge and perhaps is the the kind of ultimate thing to judge the success or the failings of the book against, perhaps. Uh, yes, indeed. And um, I, I probably can only speculate as to why she chose uh, Cromwell as the sort of main character in this book. Again, you know, I don't, seems like based on what you said just not long ago that it's probably sort of, sort of mentioned maybe, but never really focus in on and perhaps... You know, everybody's, you know, written books about Henry VIII and everything, but maybe she was wanted to go and see, perhaps, uh, I think in, in ways he is portrayed as like a mastermind um, in this book. And maybe she wanted to just kind of, maybe she became sort of hyper-focused on, on him as opposed to like, what are Henry's biggest accomplishments as, you know, maybe looking into like, was he just this one guy who was able to go in there and get everything that he did done? Or was there like maybe somebody else helping him in the background? And, you know, turns out there was to a large extent with, uh, with Cromwell. But again, yeah, that's, that's speculation. Um, perhaps her choice of the historical period is sort of also what you alluded to earlier is that this is like this big, important history, uh, historical event that's taught in, um, perhaps, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe a formative era in British history. Um, and maybe she wanted to take a closer look in that, into that era and maybe make a story around Cromwell to paint like a, like a more detailed picture. Of course, how detailed it can be, it is a historical fiction. So, um, I'm sure the historical facts are right, but, you know, the dialogues and the minor details and and a specific uh, uh, relationships between people probably aren't 100% accurate, but... Yeah, I, I think we can we can come to some of those specifics, I think, later in, in the discussion. I think there's some interesting, uh, perhaps, comparisons to be had with other historical fiction uh uh, novels and how they've approached perhaps similar-ish topics and the extent we even books that we've also read together like War and Peace for example could compare as other sources of historical fiction and the different approaches they've taken I'm sure we'll get to some of those uh, discussions uh, in time and the kind of stylistic choices that Hilary Mantel chooses uh, to tell her story uh, or tell the story of Thomas Crumman I should say as well so with that is there anything else you wanted to say before we dive into actually the plot and what happens in this book um, we could touch on first impressions after reading, mm -hmm. but we could also say that for later too, maybe along with, you know, final opinions and things like that. Uh, I can do either one. All right. Um, let's, let's go through the plot then and we'll come loop back onto that. Uh, I think we'd make cool. a way to do this. Um, 
so let's do this in a sort of semi-staccato way. Shall I just try and set out? We'll go. We can go sort of uh, roughly ch- chapter or part. I'm not quite sure. Depends on how much kind of happens in each part and sort of row through. If there's anything uh, missing, perhaps in what I'm saying, we bring it together. We can use that as a bit of a discussion point as well. Yes, we can. We can knit it together like a beautiful tapestry. Yeah. Before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, this book starts the year 1500 of the chapter Across the Narrow Sea. I thought also just the chapter title is pretty interesting in this. They didn't always, I didn't always quite get uh, why each chapter had its name, but I did see on some of them uh, why they uh, why they were. This book begins in a really dramatic way. It begins with 15-year-old Thomas Cromwell getting beaten up by his dad. He's kicked on the floor, blacksmith father, bit of a kind of nobody uh, in a sort of a hierarchical sense. He escapes to his sister's place. He gets some money uh, together and hitches a ride on a boat with some merchants and there's some sort of, sort of horseplay card tricks and everything of the rest. The first line of the book, if I'm right, is... Uh, should be, so now get up, I think is the first line. So now get up. So that obviously is the image of him being kicked on the floor, but also represents uh, his rise. This book is ultimately about Thomas Cromwell's rise from son of a blacksmith uh, to the kind of highest office in the land that isn't royalty. So that's the kind of chapter one. This is quite a, it's quite difficult to read in a way, but a very engrossing kind of start and really dives you into... Uh, it's a lot of action straight away uh, chapter 2 we go 27 years later it's quite a dramatic uh, jump I guess there's an interesting point here he's like 40 or so now uh, and uh, we it's revealed to the audience that he is now like the legal advisor to Cardinal Wolsey who's obviously a significant player in the in the Tudor time it's really kind of in between one chapter <laughs> he's arisen uh, quite quite a lot, even in that spectrum. You can almost argue that that jump from like a complete obscurity to legal advisor to uh, one of the most senior people in the uh, English religious establishment at the time is probably ironically the biggest jump. Um, but uh, I suppose that's slightly by the by. Um, the discussion at the time, what we're seeing in this part is building the landscape of uh, both um, some of the main characters, King Henry, Cardinal Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, the context of the religious atmosphere. We know that uh, Cardinal Wolsey is looking to merge the monasteries so he can provide some income for colleges that he's funding. We hear discussion about King Henry VIII wanting to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Uh, we learn some stuff about the fact that Thomas Cromwell is married uh, and there's some various machinations with him and Stephen Gardner trying to fight to be uh, favourites with, uh, with Cardinal Wolsey. That chapter is called Paternity, there's interesting sort of links and, and ideas there throughout about uh, Cromwell's low birth and the low position of his father, Cromwell's reflections on his own children, and the king's desire for a son to inherit the throne. So there's a lot of ideas about fatherhood that emerge uh, in chapter two. And then the final part of part uh, one, we meet uh, Liz, who's Cromwell's wife, she has heard about the rumour of the king wanting to annul the marriage. She says, quote, half the people in the world will be against it and all women in England will be against it. And there's discussion of, as you mentioned uh, in the sort of prelude, uh, William Tyndale's forbidden translation of the Bible. Uh, his wife hasn't read it, but Cromwell finds uh, this fascinating and finds fascinating as well about some of the main ideas of Catholicism aren't in the Bible. So purgatory, the concept of a pope uh, and so forth. 
So we're setting the seed of discontent on the religious grounds. We're setting the seed of conceit and the, the difficulties that are likely to emerge uh, with Henry's uh, sort of eventual plans to annul his, uh, his marriage. And that's kind of where we leave part one. Uh, anything you wanted to sort of loop back on on that? Anything you think missing? I think an important thing to remember, and if you ever read this book, I would definitely keep this in mind, how the... I feel like the beginning parts, like especially as Lee described in the beginning where Thomas Cromwell is getting beaten up by his father, his father and sort of like really early years before and, and when he, you know, jumps ship literally and goes off to start fighting wars and doing uh, bankery stuff and all across Europe, all over Europe and how much of that contrasts with like the rest of the book. I felt like even the writing style, as I can remember felt very different from the rest of the book and I won't I won't get into the writing style yet because we will talk about that but there is a, an interesting contrast I found between that from that beginning to the rest um, anything else no I think that was like one one point I'd, I'll just stick that in there all right I think that is a, a an interesting part there is a sort of immediacy certainly of the opening and a kind of um, uh, a perhaps more calculated, slight slow progression of progress in uh, in some of the rest of the of the book. Some of that partly reflects the style of the book and the kind of events that it's capturing as well. But I think there's a really good job I think done capturing this. I suppose the big question is why start with you know across the narrow sea? Why start with that chapter? My theory is this that it the whole book is effectively a kind of let's call it a more favourable biography of Thomas Cromwell in a, to an extent, right? I think the fact that we start with this chapter immediately makes you feel more sympathy for him. I think it's quite helpful because it shows you his sort of lowly position. He's kind of like, you know, facing the dirt. So all the time that he progresses and progresses further on, you as the reader are very cogent about his story. If he starts... Uh, sorry, if Hilary uh, Mantel starts this book already as the aide or the legal advisor to Thomas, uh, 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 Thomas Wolsey, then do we lose a little bit of sympathy for him on that journey? Probably. So I think there's a nice thing to bring the audience in by showing Cromwell in the dirt and does it in a way that's not expositional. So he doesn't just say, oh, by the way, I was really poor, you know, back in the past. We've seen it and we feel sorry for him at that period and think, oh my God, his dad's a piece of work and his this is not the situation that you would choose and he's had to basically flee. So I think that's a really interesting place that the book chooses to start and I thought it was a really good opening. Um, turning to part two, um, we move on a few years. We've gone on from sort of two years from the end of part one and the tone shifts uh, quickly here. This is the sort of emergence of um, Anne Boleyn. We begin with uh, what's called the Visitation, a really interesting name, by the way, again for the the chapter, because the Visitation, of course, in the Bible is uh, Mary going to Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth has John the Baptist going to give uh, uh, going to give birth, and we see a little bit about the Visitation later on in Liz's uh, drawings in the prayer book. So it's an interesting kind of idea, as well as a literal Visitation. So I think there's an interesting idea about that. So we begin here with sort of stripping out Cardinal Wolsey's place for Lady Anne, as she's called. Uh, who, quote, needs a London house of her own, 
it's an interesting kind of segment because we see Cardinal Wolsey's kind of opulent life. He's got all this kind of stuff with him. And they compare the move to a kind of military campaign. They're like, get all this stuff on the boat. How are we going to get all this stuff out? <laughs> but simultaneously, we also feel a bit sorry for him because he's an old, frail man. He can't even get on the mule by himself. And you feel a little bit sad, even though he's still really fond of the king. And he sort of um, you know, puts himself down in a, in, a, in a sort of respect in this way. There's an interesting kind of contrast, uh, I think, in that beginning part. The second chapter is is really uh, interesting, an occult history of Britain. Uh, I found this chapter very, very interesting, and especially the name of it, but sorry to interrupt, no, but no. I just really wanted to yes. say that. No, that no, that yes, it was one of the most memorable. It begins with uh, a relatively short story about the kind of mythological start of uh, of British history. I suppose, as, as the story goes, or supposedly is told at the time. Basically, it almost starts with a legend of women killing their husbands and getting banished uh, to the British Isles and having you know children with the giants here and everything like that. <laughs> Effectively, the long story short is the Tudors are supposedly descended from a Trojan named Brutus who killed a race of giants that inhabited Britain a long time ago. And so what this is doing is sort of telling us a little bit about the kind of lore of the time, um, the kind of way in which royal families who would have the, who say they have the divine right uh, of kings, the divine right to rule, need to base their uh, legitimacy in a kind of quasi-mythological past uh, to give them a kind of legitimacy, like we are the legitimate rulers of this island. So it's a really interesting kind of place to start. And I didn't quite get perhaps all the undercurrents of what this story is uh, is trying to say. But of course, it's starting with uh, women killing their husbands, which I think is an interesting, uh, an interesting perhaps idea <laughs> to flip around in some of the context of this. Nonetheless, yeah. uh, do you want to say anything about was, that part of it? Oh, I just want to say I was aware of the legend of King Arthur, but I'd never heard of this other story about the women killing the men and setting him to it island and sleeping with the giants and, you know, birthing I guess quasi uh, half giant, half other people, whatever. Was this ever like, have you ever heard about that legend? No. <laughs> okay, I, was, I was wondering, because I, I never watched like a Disney Presents uh, this part <laughs> legend of his British history. Yeah. So I was just curious. No, it's... Go on. No, it's um, not one that... Uh, that I had ever heard. It's an interesting place to start it. I'm assuming that I'm not the only person in the UK that wouldn't know that story. So part of this makes me think that this is a story that no, we don't have now, but was a common story told to legitimise mm. the reign of the Tudors. Of course, when you've got this this element of the the sort of the things like the Wars of the Roses, where family structures become so complicated that a lot of different parties can have a sort of legitimate. Right. Uh, rule, right. and so if you can ground your family or your tribe of that in some part of the history and some part of the kind of original story, we've always been the kind of rulers here. That can help to promote your legitimacy. So this strikes me as a story that was being told at the time in order to sort of show uh, that the Tudors were kind of here and they are the rightful, uh, the rightful rulers. Makes sense. So, so we, we learn a bit then here about Anne Boleyn. She comes to court. She's 20 years old, doughy-eyed, uh, fresh-faced. There's a certain amount of uh, 
sort of court gossip that takes place in this book, and it does begin uh, a bit in this uh, a bit in this uh, chapter about matching her off with various uh, various people. There's stories at this time that the king is having an affair with Mary Boleyn, who is Anne's older sister, but Henry is said to have his eye on Anne. In the background, you've got the Holy Roman em- uh, Empire taking the Pope prisoner. One of the reasons that's relevant is in the context of this story. The Emperor is Catherine of Aragon's nephew, and so that puts the marriage annulment idea on pause, because effectively you're going to have to uh, you'd have to go through Rome to get this done, uh, and the Rome uh, and the Pope is basically under uh, arrest. At the same time, you've got a sweating sickness in London. Uh, Liz, who's Thomas Cromwell's wife, dies. Uh, they're under sort of house quarantine for a bit. Interesting kind of pre-COVID. And of course, this book is written before COVID. So the uh, interesting idea about how lockdowns and stuff would be handled in Tudor England. And actually, some of the same strategies that we probably still used in COVID were still being used 500 years ago. Interesting kind of little side, side note on it. Um, the king becomes crazy about Anne Boleyn, and this emerges kind of as well in this section. Thomas Cromwell becomes friends with Mary Boleyn. She's um, she's quite keen to actually marry Thomas Cromwell, I think, in this bit, to give her family a bit of a shock. Cromwell's a bit like, probably quite wisely, he's like, mm, I've got to get out of there. Gets a bit of space between him and Mary Boleyn. What transpires later is that we find out that she's pregnant with, presumably, Henry's child. And so if he didn't really pull out at that time and actually just still went ahead and married her, he could be fathering Henry's uh, child. So it could have been a very uh, a very messy situation that it would have completely jolted his career, his career options. So he'd done, a good, uh, he'd done a good job for his career there on backing out of that, despite the kind of chemistry that they seem to have. Sweating sickness continues. Thomas Cromwell's daughters, Anne and Grace, die. So uh, not not looking for good for his family, and there's a trial for Ka- of Catherine of Aragon to basically show that she wasn't a virgin when he married the king, and the king believes that that's the way to get the, the marriage annulled. But the trial doesn't really end with a clear win for the king, and this starts the fall of Cardinal Wolsey, who becomes out of favour because he can't lead this sort of case to success and becomes sort of cast out of office even uh, further. The final part of this is that we see Cromwell taking vigil alone. He's longing for his wife who's passed away. He's looking through the illustrations in his uh, late wife's prayer book of the Visitation, which was chapter one, interestingly, of this section, the Nativity, and I think the murder of infants by Herod's soldiers. So these are all biblical scenes about having children. Uh, An interesting part of this is that we see Cromwell in a way that we don't see in the history books, that we see him as a very positive light. His uh, his devotion and his feelings towards his family are quite uh, striking in this book, I thought, and certainly compared to the kind of Machiavellian edge that the textbooks tend to take on him. Suffice to say, though, in this in this um, in this section, I think George Cavendish kind of comes along, sees him crying, and Cromwell, which is I think implied to the reader, fakes an excuse that says that he is basically, he thinks that he's going to be taken down with uh, Cardinal Wolsey as well, and he regrets being his right-hand man. Of course, that's not really the reason that he's crying. He's crying because he's devastated about the loss of his wife. But he's he can't really say that in front of that, and so he uses this story uh, as the excuse um, around it. 
So I thought this is a really interesting take, and one of the things that makes this book quite interesting is that we see a very sympathetic account of Thomas Cromwell, and particularly his relationship with his family. And that's where part two closes. Uh, any thoughts or anything to loop back on on that? Yeah, well, you already said what I... At least one component that I was going to say uh, was how this is yet another example where uh, Hillary depicts, or at least looks like she's depicting um, Cromwell as a very sympathetic character, as well as, as you mentioned earlier, and that didn't really strike me so much either, but at the time, but now that I think more about it, you mentioned how, like, um, when Wolsey is being kind of, you know, taken, having all his, like, nice stuff taken away, um, you know, him being in a, having kind of been placed in this sort of high uh, status position and, you know, having all these nice things, you know, but then being removed and he falls down off the horse and now he kind of looks more frail, like this old man should be, you know, should we feel bad for him or should we say like, well, you never really should have been there in the first place. It was all kind of given to you. Um, that kind of contrast. So I think that was, I don't know how much of a connection the author was trying to make there, but I think uh, some, at least if not a weak connection could be made. Um, I think, Maybe you did go with this, but I, I felt like uh, there was maybe one piece of the, just a, a minor piece in the sort of conflict between Catherine and Henry that um, either I'm, either I blanked out or maybe you missed uh, um, was the fact that uh, so Catherine was previously married to um, Henry's older brother. Did you did you mention that? No, no, I didn't. Okay, so that was another sort of, um, I guess, reason that uh, uh, Henry was trying to, or excuse, you could maybe say, to, to show to the Catholic Church that, um, oh, this marriage was never legitimate because uh, she was already married to my brother, and now that she's my, I guess, sister-in-law, that would be incest, and <laughs> this kind of goes into the mind of Henry, like how desperate he is to come up with like a um, some sort of excuse to just kind of get whatever he wants. And that's really uh, um, kind of is a familiar character that I remember from when I was reading that Henry VIII book uh, by Starkey. It, I think Hillary did her homework. I mean, to say that's uh, understating it, I'm sure, but she definitely did her homework because these, the character in this book, uh, Henry VIII and the the Henry VIII that's depicted in you know not uh, non-fiction history books it is it's him to a T as far as I could tell absolutely and it's a difficult thing to take on when you take on depicting someone uh, that is so sort of well known but it's someone that you obviously know when alive would have heard him speak <laughs> So to some extent, you have to try to imagine what he would have actually sounded like and his sort of tone of voice and his choice of words and his kind of uh, general style. I think I think she does a pretty good job of that. And I, I think you, you car- it carries the kind of general weight of sort of paranoia, I think, in his style and kind of quite childishness, um, mm. impetuousness. 
And I think that is, uh, that's very much kind of a historical record that's quite how he's captured. But I do think, as you say, you draw the analogy between Wolsey's sort of sympathy you sort of have for Wolsey, or a bit of disgust, but a bit of sympathy. And I think that's what you end up coming a bit with Thomas Cromwell. Although I think for a bit more sympathy than disgust, I think, with Cromwell. I think Wolsey feels somewhat uh, more negative about. But again, most of the sort of religious figures at the time are depicted as a kind of, certainly in the modern literature, as kind of like nominally religious but actually we're sort of using it to embezzle funds and everything like that. And some of that does come across in this book. About... There's no way they would do that. <laughs> They're men of God. You know, taking money from the monasteries to set up colleges that he likes, for example. It's, it's kind of, uh, especially you could argue that might not be a bad thing depending on what the colleges are doing. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's the kind of the appropriation of religious funds for his own choices. But nonetheless, I do, I do think there's an interesting point there. Um, part three... Um, we move a little bit on in the story, a couple of years, uh, not too too much further. Just to sort of think, that just uh, just to now we're into fifteen thirty. Certainly by some of uh, some of this part, Cromwell is now risen even further. He's got a seat in the House of Commons. We meet um, the How- uh, the Norfolks, Thomas Howard, Zamberlin's uncle, wants him to use. The seat now in the House of Commons to further the Norfolk's family's uh, aims, of course. The king is, uh, as we've already discussed, was unhappy with Cardinal Wolsey for failing to clinch the divorce. There's some discussion and a memory about Cromwell speaking and warning the king against having a war with the French, uh, basically on the grounds of uh, we can't afford it, it'll bankrupt us, and the king is just like, you know, I just love a bit of war, and it's good for the king to have successful military conflict, and that obviously defines a lot of this period of history. It's about kind of semi-pointless military conflict um, for kings to have their reputation sort of in the history books. Um, there's an interesting sort of fascination with Cromwell's life story from the rise of the son of a blacksmith to sort of such the role that he has now. Um, there's charges that start being prepared in this section against Cardinal Wolsey by the king's advisers. He tries to get back in the good books of Anne Boleyn, pretty unlikely I think at this point, um, but she does take note of Thomas Cromwell who emerges as someone potentially quite helpful uh, and quite useful. We go back a little bit to Austin Friars, we see Cromwell having painful memory. What we also now know is his sister and uh, her husband have died. She ta- He takes in Gregory, who's there uh, son, or he dots sort of from them. Uh, it's a bit of a difficult uh, thing to go through. They go to they go out to graze in for a bit of a celebration uh, around uh, Christmas time. But there's some students that are doing a play about the fall of uh, Wolsey, and they leave. I think this is supposed to show us that it's it's obvious that Wolsey is doomed. He is a senior religious person, a senior figure in the country who has massive influence. Who could probably lock people up for sort of blasphemy or something for those kind of displays so for students to be making a comedy basically about his fall shows you that the general population is both aware of his um, uh, his sort of incarceration I guess and also think it's a foregone conclusion that he's not going to come out of it too well uh, Cromwell tries to fight for Wolsey and he's still really loyal to Wolsey almost throughout the entire book uh, Apparently some good impression made, but doesn't quite fundamentally change that dynamic. We also see Thomas More. There's a verbal sparring match uh, at a dinner, uh, which Thomas More leaves early from. 
Uh, and then there's some discussion here about warning Cromwell from, from helping uh, Wolsey too much. Obviously, this chapter is called Three Card Trick, which is obviously a confidence uh, trick. There's something about Cromwell's early life ability to outfox people and create illusions and to, to make people see things that you want them to see. Uh, I think that's the kind of metaphor going on there. Moving to sort of chapter two, interesting title again, Entirely Beloved Cromwell. This helps us also see the position that Cromwell's now in. Uh, in. He's actually pretty well liked by most of the major players at the time. Uh, Cromwell goes now to Anne Boleyn. Again, tries to help Cardinal Wolsey. doesn't really work. There's rumours that Anne Boleyn is pregnant, but Mary Boleyn is denying that. Uh, we see the separation of Wolsey and Cromwell geographically. Wolsey's gone up north. We see an encounter between Thomas More uh, and Cromwell again. And he is emerging as a kind of adversary, I think, that we see as, as, this, uh, as this section uh, progresses. We see, for example, Thomas More's treatment of girls and women in his household is very negative portrayal. He says things like, we must keep young women employed. They are prone to mischief and idleness. He has a story about giving his do- daughter a box of peas rather than pearls, and like, basically laughs in her face. <laughs> She's obviously so distraught about this. I, just thought, I thought it was actually quite funny, but it was also just like, well, that yeah. this is obviously like the head of Mattel's going like double-footed tackled into Thomas More. And, you know, you see Thomas More like, telling his wife off in public. There's a huge contrast between what we've just seen from Cromwell's relationship with his wife, and it's a very right. negative portrayal of Thomas More. And so there's a really interesting contrast that you see them, but certainly as we're sitting on from our shoulder for basically the whole book, um, we are we are now being positioned to see Thomas More as the kind of primary adversary as the book kind of goes on. We also see a relationship and the functioning relationship between Cromwell and Anne Boleyn um, working. They have some interesting kind of uh, alliance between them. They have a similar strategic view of getting what they want, and there's benefits to Thomas Cromwell, I'm sure, as well as appending the kind of order of things too. We meet Thomas Cranmer, of course, will be very important too. He's also working on the King's divorce case. Uh, and there's generally um, some more uh, progression on some of the factions at court and Wolsey's arrest. Uh, the final part of this uh, part is quite a relatively short period where uh, Cromwell is summoned to Greenwich in the middle of the night. The King has sort of had a bit of a nightmare or had a vision that his dead brother comes to visit him in a dream to make him feel ashamed of being married to Catherine of Aragon. Cromwell instead argues that it's more likely that he came back to uh, say, quote, remind you that you are vested with the power of both the living and the dead. Now is the time to be the sole and supreme head of your kingdom. So this pacifies the king. And Thomas Cranmer is also really quite impressed with this. And it seems to work for him because... Later in the next day, Cromwell goes back and gets a, a senior position as one of the king's councillors. This chapter is really important because it shows us uh, several of Thomas Cromwell's strengths. He's like quick to see and take advantage of an opportunity. He's fast thinking. He's creative. He knows his audience. And he can tell a really good story to the people that need to hear it. Uh, and we see him almost sort of now emerging as the new Cardinal Wolsey, as Wolsey's uh, sort of put in the background. And actually, I believe he's got at this point Wolsey's turquoise ring. And so we see it symbolically him taking over Wolsey's role too. And that's part three. 
nicely done. Yeah, um, just a few things. Uh, I think this part, as I recall it, uh, I just remember everything that came up to this this part three. If I had really no no background knowledge of Henry, I would probably think of him as like, you know, he's the king. He's all powerful. He's, you know, got everything. Everybody's kind of at his beck and call and, you know, he can move militaries and move cash and, you know, do whatever powerful people do. And I think this is the part um, where I think some of his major vulnerabilities are more emphasized. I think like this is where he's kind of like des- desperate for cash or strapped for cash. Thinking, uh, I think at one point, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he was thinking about going to invade somebody just to get some more, <laughs> or e- either he didn't have enough money to go invade or he wanted to invade for, for more money or both. Or <laughs> but the general feeling that I got was like, okay, this is the point where you start to see where uh, the king seems like to have these, these flaws and weaknesses and also at the same time where... Uh, Cromwell starts to step in and and uh, you know do his job and to as you said pacify the king and and starts to I guess take advantage not maybe well maybe maybe in a malicious calculated way or maybe just uh, maybe he's a nice guy who knows uh, starts taking advantage of these um, sort of weaknesses. Yeah, I think that's right. It's I remember even just learning again about this period in history in school seen in the textbooks and everything like that. And it, it seemed a bit bizarre, his fascination with having wars. <laughs> Always seemed very odd by the modern <laughs> standard. But our, of course, our impression of war now is informed by the fact that we've actually seen what these things look like. And obviously now we have a very mm. mechanised form of war with uh, bombs and mines and everything. It was quite far removed from the kind of, let's say, turn up on a field one day and duel with uh, swords and all the rest of it. Um yeah, but nonetheless, just uh, clearly at a time where you can imagine just the strength, just the amount of poverty that was around in the fifteen hundreds, and your king is sort of trying to levy more taxes. He debases the coinage in in actual parts of history. I don't think this happens in the book, and I can't remember if it does or not. But that's a famous part of Henry VIII's reign that he gets all the coins. He collects all the coins in England. He sort of melts them down, and then sort of debases them with some sort of cheaper material sends them back to the population and basically uses that extra remnant to pay for the war. <laughs> so it's quite, it's just quite wow. like desperate. Like, yeah. <laughs> desperate. What a guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> desperate bloke. I mean, he couldn't, couldn't get away with that now. I mean, uh, <laughs> I didn't try to do that. Well, I'll take your car <laughs> and I'll melt it down. Probably and... <laughs> could. Probably could in some countries, yeah. but not in the UK, no, I'm sure. <laughs> no, and certainly not in the US. Yeah, that is, yeah just, it's, it's hard not to think about the, the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, war at the moment, uh, based on what you said earlier, how, like, back then, like, we, you know, the West right now would probably be considered, like, outliers or weird that we're helping Ukraine just because Russia invaded, whereas now we see that sort of belligerent invasion and, you know, everybody's, you know, ready to, you know, toss a bunch of money for Ukraine and feeling a lot of, like, sympathy and empathy for Ukraine and everything at least in the West generally speaking but mm. that was like normal back in the 1500s yeah 
I think what's pretty interesting is it's more likely in the 1500s that you would have supported with manpower, not money. I think that the king and decision makers would have valued money higher than lives because they weren't really sure, elected, yeah. right? So they didn't... If you lost a few people, then that was fine. But if you just, just chuck money over to Spain, chuck money over to Ukraine, then that was sort of a bit wasteful from their perspective. But it's obviously clearly the other way mm-hmm. around now where lives are sacred and losing a couple of billion is uh, less important in the, the government's decision-making. Certainly they won't get the public wrath that they might do if they uh, uh, toss loads of... Uh, uh, sort of British bodies over the line. Um, turning to yep. turning to part four, um, begins again with a very interestingly titled uh, chapter. Arrange your face. Um, some very interesting titles, and that was certainly one of them. We see Thomas Cromwell here collaborating with another Thomas, Thomas Cranmer. One innovation they have is to uh, declare, or have an idea at least, to declare the king as the head of the church in England. And this will pave the way for the king to marry Anne Boleyn. There's various sort of uh, court meetings, of course, at this time, visits to Catherine, Princess Mary, Anne Boleyn. There's gossip involving Sir John Seymour, who is father of one of Anne's ladies, Jane. Jane Seymour, spoiler alert, going to be really important. Keep an eye on her. She emerges. Um, perhaps less in this book, but you know in the history, she's wife number three. So you know Jane Seymour is going to be a big deal. So we keep an eye on her. And you know the name Seymour is an interesting one to kind of keep track of. There's upheaval in the church, of course. Thomas More is gaining a reputation for torturing heretics. <laughs> Anne Boleyn is quite sympathetic, though, to the Protestant viewpoint, has indeed actually had conversations with the king about it. Tyndale, Lutheran ideas spread in court despite Moore's uh, vigilance in doing so. Um, Stephen Gardiner becomes Bishop of uh, Winchester, which is a very rich um, uh, bishopric to take on. Anne is not pleased because Gardiner doesn't support their marriage. Uh, Cromwell's not really pleased either because he's obviously had a bit of a rivalry since the beginning but the king wants them to work together uh, Sir Henry Wyatt uh, his son I can't remember his name is remember, Tom Wyatt Thomas Wyatt supposedly is Anne Boleyn's lover or was Anne Boleyn's lover comes to Austin Friars they have a bit of a, a bit of a booze up um, and some memory about his own father uh, at this time again we see more as the principal adversary uh, to this, Cromwell's working on the king's divorce problem, uh, and this is how this sort of part is taking shape. We see some strategy emerge on how to deal with the Henry's divorce. We see Cranmer go to Germany to try to get support there. We see new legislation to stop paying money to Rome. We see Anne become the Marquis of Pembrokeshire, so she she isn't like a she still then becomes basically a royal in a in a respect, and therefore the kind of um, the status symbol becomes less. Um, uh, of a reason to object to the marriage. It's becoming quite clear, though, that Anne is going to become the queen. Cromwell's continuing to advise her, makes her uh, makes himself really important during this period, uh, but also wants her to promise him a position in the royal household. Tom Wyatt apologises for the fact he got a bit pissed up on New Year's Day. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> he says, uh, Anne Boleyn... Uh, he never did anything more than kiss her, basically, but he thinks that she had some other lovers, although perhaps they had the same limits. Cromwell says, 
Uh, Henry believes that she's a virgin, and that's what matters now. Uh, Thomas More continuing to burn heretics. There's a confrontation again with uh, Cromwell. Uh, after, after this point, Cromwell has a memory of wandering into a crowd at an execution when he was a child and seeing um, uh, a burning of an old woman for having Protestant beliefs as a bit of a, uh, uh, a flashback scene. Uh, again, Cromwell moving higher up, the keeper of the jewel house or some other sort of positions. Bishops sign a document, which is quite important, that they won't make decisions without the king's permission. Uh, uh, so it sort of pays some of the, the, the groundwork to come uh, later on. Some drama between some of the sort of background characters. One of them says that they were already married to Anne. Or at least his wife thinks that he was already married to Anne. Cromwell basically kind of deals with the situation and gets him to shut up. Otherwise, he's going to call in the debtors, or the creditors, sorry, and ask him to pay his debts. So he's kind of seen as a kind of good handyman, I think, throughout this part as well. Uh, there's a banquet. Cromwell sits next to Jane Seymour, who he has a soft spot for, for which is going to be a bit deadly, <laughs> um, uh, certainly beyond this book and actually in history. Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury dies. Uh, the King of France persuade, is persuaded to support the marriage. And Anne and the king are married in a private ceremony in Calais, I think. Or certainly in France. And then this chapter ends with early mass, 1532. The king's gone to mass. Uh, Cromwell sees him and he's got a new hat and he's wearing a, he's, uh, he's got a feather, a new feather in there. Feathers are a sign of, uh, uh, achievement, usually in like hunting. And he sees his smile. So the implication being that they've sort of, uh, they've consummated their marriage. Uh, that's part four. I think this is where thing. I mean, things were already really heated, but this is obviously where a lot of uh, where Henry is going to run into a lot of challenges. Um, now that he's just kind of went against the Catholic Church and uh, just went yeah. ahead and got married, um, but I think that's just a uh, it's kind of a, maybe that might, that'll probably come up in the, in the next chapters. <laughs> what that really means for him. Um. Yeah, I think uh, he did a pretty good. All right. <laughs> I felt like this. I felt like this part was more like informational. Yeah. Uh, as I can remember, it's just like this happened and this happened. And this happened. So I. Yeah. I can't. This is that I'm, bit. I'm not drawing. Yeah. This much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think part four. What it's doing here, the whole point is basically this shows you that yes, they have been successful and they get married. So all that activity leading up to that regardless of whether it was right or wrong, uh, he's now been successful and the king has actually been married, able to marry him. Part five is perhaps where a lot of the climax starts to come and that's where we turn to now. 1533, right. uh, Anna Regina, Queen Anne, the chapter centering around the coronation, the rise to become the queen. Uh, Anne is pregnant. There's rumours about her state. Cranmer to become Archbishop of Canterbury. There is still a bit of um, a sense that there's sort of disquiet or a little bit instability in the background on that. It's not like the public has sort of fully embraced the kind of Lutheran Tyndale ideas, uh, despite the animosity towards Rome. Uh, Anne has the idea to marry Mary off to one of uh, Cromwell's son Gregory, or the adopted son Gregory, or the nephew Richard. Now, Henry doesn't agree uh, because, well, the assumption is that Anne is pregnant 
they can't have sex and therefore he wants to keep Mary around the court. That's probably one of the only ways to read this part. Henry set on the coronation, despite, as I said, unsteady public opinion about this. Anne is very impatient for this bill to go through that's going to forbid people from taking an appeal to Rome. She knows that she has a lot of enemies at this stage. She's completely kind of ripped up the playbook on this. And there's, yeah, they love Catherine. Yeah, and there's grip, she puts great <laughs> store in knowing that her child is going to be a boy. And Henry, of course, defends his decision to marry her on having a male heir. I mean, the pressure that this is kind of building to uh, is quite immense and obviously a big risky decision. You can imagine the kind of insecurity, certainly from her perspective, uh, that is kind of riding on here. Uh, Cromwell's bill passes. He's the chance of the exchequer. Again, this guy gets promotions like they've gone out of season. Catherine becomes Dowager Princess of Wales. Um, she's not very happy with that, of course. Uh, Anne's coronation goes ahead. Cranmer marries a German woman called Margaret, but it's keep secret. So he's a bit naughty. And what's interesting about this is that you see the kind of the division between the kind of old Catholic style, we can't have a partner, and the kind of Protestant, dare I say, the kind of we can change it to suit us a little bit. It feels a bit like that. And Cranmer's kind of like, well, we're we're creating a new church. So, you know, we're creating our rules as we go. And there's a sense of like the kind of mysterious and he knows that perhaps he shouldn't be doing that. Cromwell agrees her to help him. And he's got Helen Barr, I think, or so, Helen someone in his household. I think he's also German. And basically can help, uh, help his wife out. Uh, and this chapter ends with uh, Anne withdrawing to sealed rooms in uh, in Greenwich. This chapter is obviously fascinating because of everything that's going on and like the immense pressure and the drama that's building towards Anne's child, the birth of Anne's child. We obviously know, like historically, that this is not going to be a boy. So like, the reader will know that this is not going to be a boy. There's no, there's no like, will it, won't it. We know this is not going to be a boy. So, this is this is quite painful. It's painful to see, and it's a bit like watching a car crash because you can see it just kind of going like. She basically thinks she's surviving only from the fact that she's going to have a boy. Henry is thinking, "I better, I better fucking have a boy now because look at all the stuff I've done, you know." And I, I've made a decision to divorce from uh, Catherine and all that marriage basically because I think that she couldn't have a son, and that was her fault. So I have to have a son. It's it's quite interesting the kind of. Obviously, that was quite a flimsy reason, <laughs> quite a flimsy reason to pursue yeah. this line of action, quite a radical action. And so there's, it's quite a dramatic crescendo here to building to a bit that the audience knows is going to be like, oh my God, how are they all going to react? Because you just know Elizabeth is coming and it's not the boy that he wants. And what the hell is going to happen? But obviously, we turn to the next chapter and... Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the baby's born, but it's a girl, and it's Elizabeth. Uh, obviously, the reader has the benefit of knowing that Elizabeth goes on to be one of the most successful English monarchs. So there is something, to, a sort of a bright light to be had there, but obviously it doesn't do much to placate Henry at the time. It's also worth just stating very quickly the reason that Henry is obviously really keen for a boy, because certainly at this time, in a warring era, the king was the head of the military, seen as sort of somewhat implausible, that a woman could lead the military in a, or even the nation, perhaps, in a kind of uh, a, a believable, strong, 
uh, way that will inspire resilience and courage from the troops and from the public, rightly or wrongly. That's the view uh, that he has. And that's why he's pursuing this, what seems like a very, from a modern perspective, seems a very, very odd thing to pursue to such a degree and to upend and basically create an entire new religion for this purpose. Seems, uh, seems odd. Nonetheless, Anne's baby's born. It's Elizabeth. Surprise. There's some um, prophecies uh, by someone called the maid, I think, against Anne that she's made up, basically. And basically there's a, a network of people that still support Catherine, and that's the whole point of that. Thomas More goes to this session where they try to uh, get her to do penance. So Thomas More is trying to say that he doesn't support that. Um, and Cromwell thinks that he should do more to support Anne and, uh, and certainly Princess Elizabeth as well. Um, uh, also in the section, Anne is pregnant again. Hooray to the king's delight. And she's really relieved, of course, because she's like thinking, oh, bloody hell, you know, I might have another, uh, another chance here to come up with a son. <laughs> Um, that's not going to go quite well either yeah (laughs) but there you go and the final chapter in this the painter a painter's eye so an artist has painted a portrait of Cromwell and it depicts him with a quill it's got some scissors got some papers it's got a seal um, in a bag and he's got a book it's supposed to be a bible but it's actually some finances this this section is basically about uh, the differences between the portrait... Well, there's, there's a lot of differences here. There's a difference between uh, the portrait and his memories of sitting for it uh, and the reaction of his friends and the household have quite varied and reflect the part of sometimes that he's he's quite calm and smiling towards the women, particularly in his household, but can be quite hard and cold, particularly to some men. And so they all have very different things that they look into this from. I thought what was interesting as well is, of course, you've got the element of like one, the painter's view of Cromwell. Two, Cromwell doing a pose, so putting on a pretense, of course, that he's done through most of the, the book as well. And the other element is the bit where he knows things about the painting, for example, about the book that's not actually the Bible, that other viewers won't know. And so there is an element of this kind of duplicity that we see uh and the kind of like deceptions that the appearances can be deceptive kind of thing that i think emerge uh very strongly in that chapter and that's uh that's chapter five. Oh, sorry part five i should say yeah um definitely a tumultuous time um i think this is like where you really start to get the the pulse of the country as it were um where their allegiance lie whether it's with catherine who at least from the book's perspective, I think it's fair to say was the more popular uh, monarch uh, or queen as opposed to Anne Boleyn. Um, but King Henry and Anne Boleyn would not let it happen or let them have what they wanted. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting to contrast with you know, these days. Uh, not that it's all that relevant to the book, but you know, just to think back in a time in England where um, people like really liked the monarchy. There wasn't like a question: was, Are you pro or anti monarchy? That's like they might be like more pro one monarch over another, but nobody's questioning the monarchy. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Uh, a fun fact that you brought up, uh, which uh, 
definitely uh, shines a light on my American ignorance. I did not put it together that this Elizabeth, uh, Anne Boleyn's Elizabeth, would go on to be Elizabeth the first, right? <laughs> so I didn't <laughs> think about that. And I'm sure it was one of those books that I read, but I just forgot. <laughs> in any case. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, yeah, you talked about, this is where her miscarriage was too, right? After giving birth to, Elizabeth, or, or is that different? Oh, it, uh, it's the next bit, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, anyway, um, I think it's kind of from a, his, you know, outside of the sort of narrative perspective, it does, I think it does, this part does a good job of showing you like what British, and not just British, but a lot of European society was like these days where you know, succession comes from. Now, I think Henry might, <laughs> at least the one that I'm, as far as I'm aware, he was probably one of the more egregious among his contemporary monarchs. But, you know, when it comes to succession and, and uh, having male heirs, it's uh, really important, which I don't think it's a, that would be a surprise uh, to anybody these days. But uh, Henry was definitely willing to go jump, jump through some really high hoops to, to get what he wanted. So also speaks to his sort of ruthlessness as a king. I think it also shows you Anne Boleyn's, Anne Boleyn's own skills at manipulating the king, right, using yeah. her feminine charms to kind of just tease him along. <laughs> now that's the power of women. You've made someone completely upend <laughs> the entire establishment. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Kind of reminds me of how uh, how uh, in Cleopatra, at least there was the big uh, depicted how Cleopatra would also have these machinations and everything to get what her, mm. she wants. So maybe they're related. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a historical fact? I don't know. <laughs> a couple of years before. Who's that? It's questions. <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting, uh, an interesting link. We could loop back to some links again uh, later, uh, perhaps later in that. That's an interesting thing I actually thought about. Yeah. Part of my brain was trying to put together like... Uh, Bismarck's rise to power and uh, and uh, Cromwell's, but I don't think they quite fit. But I, I feel like I can see the strategic some part of the strategic strategery that kind of helped mm. them, yeah, get to where they ended up. Yeah, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had if we can tease it out. Um, the final part, part six. Um. This is the Here we are. finale uh, of the of the book. Fifteen thirty four. The king uh, wants <laughs> access to the wealth that the Catholic Church has. This is um, setting up the um, uh, dissolution of the monastery stuff, which we also learn about at school. Basically, kind of goes round, tears up the monastery, gets all the money. Uh, sorry, gets all the stuff that's in there, sells it, and uses it to fund wars. <laughs> um, Cromwell wants to help him do that. The king wants a bill that's going to ensure the succession of Anne's children, and he wants everyone to take an oath. It's called the Act of Succession. The king isn't very happy with uh, with Thomas More. Um, Cromwell takes Gregory uh, to visit baby Elizabeth and Lady Mary. He says to Mary that she should greet Anne, Anne Boleyn, or Queen Anne now, respectfully, in order to make life easier for herself. 
Mary says that Anne hates her because she has sons that might threaten Anne's children. Uh, Cromwell basically says she doesn't actually really want to be your friend. She just wants you to act the part, basically. Gregory, interestingly, notes that later, you know, if, if the king died tomorrow, even though Elizabeth is supposed to be the successor, Mary is still a Tudor and she is of the age to rule. And again, this was quite a big debate at the time about who would come first in the order of succession. This obviously is quite a big deal, uh, uh, certainly from the perspective of Anne, because if Mary becomes queen, uh, Anne is kind of a threat to her mum, let's say, right, who's Catherine. So you can see all the dynamics could be quite difficult for, for Anne if that eventuality would have, would, was to have happened. Thomas More refuses to swear this oath uh, on the act of succession. Uh, Cromwell continues to rise and rise and rise. Anne Boleyn has a second pregnancy. It ends in miscarriage. Not good. Uh, chapter two. Uh, the Pope hmm. dies. There's a new Pope, but the English don't call him the Pope anymore. They call him the Bishop of Rome. Very sassy. Uh... <laughs> yeah. We'll give you a new title. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Passive-aggressive name, that one. Um, the King's very pleased by Cromwell. This guy can do no wrong. He's offered the Lord Chancellorship, extremely senior position, but he's chosen another role instead. Basically, he kind of becomes a bit of a kind of wheeler-dealer, sort of quasi-kind-of-mafia guy who's sort of thinking about how he sells properties and he buys them out and how you can lend money and how you can do favours for people and how they can then have to do that in return and how that can you can manipulate these resources and favours in order to achieve whatever the kind of long-term goals that you want to. It's a very kind of like Godfather kind of-esque kind of thing I was sort of seeing in that. Um, the king... Uh, is not very happy because, again, still people think he should take Catherine back. He becomes sort of increasingly uh, deranged or fantastical. He like takes, he's got a little iron lock he takes with him everywhere. Thomas More, who's sort of been cast aside, he's sort of wasting away. Cromwell tries to get him to support the Act of Supremacy, which says the king is the head of the church and always has been. Uh, Thomas More can agree with the first bit, but he can't agree with the always has been. Uh, and so his goods are seized and he's denied visitors in his home and he can't go outside his house anymore either. So he's basically got a house arrest um, uh, in not a real situation for him. Mary Boleyn, remember her, Anne's older sister, she's pregnant. Everyone is certain that the child is the king's. Mary denies it. Anne, livid, of course, and basically <laughs> sends her off to Kent. You could have sent us somewhere further away, and Kent's not that far from London, but there you go. <laughs> it's just down the road. It's not that far. Back then, it was a long walk. Yeah, <laughs> that's miles away. It was like you could have sent us, like, you know, um, if it's not Siberia, then it's really not being outcast, is it? It's not really. <laughs> We've got high standards for that now. Um, anyway, the Henry and Cromwell's overhaul of the religious landscape in England continues, and it's moving forwards. Cromwell's got another... This guy has about 25 roles at this time in his time in government. And this role allows him to close the monasteries and seize the assets. So what I was talking about, the dissolution of the monasteries. Some people that are still faithful to Rome are executed. And Thomas More is tried for treason. The final chapter, to Wolf Hall, set in 1535. There's the trial of Thomas More. Pretty quick and pretty dramatic. He's basically very contemptuous of the process... And he insults the Solicitor General. 
the jury find him guilty in 15 minutes and he is executed. Cromwell is planning a trip across England with Anne and the king and various attendants. There's still some hope in the air that Anne will become pregnant again. But interestingly, Cromwell is scheduling a five-day visit to Wolf Hall, which is home of the Seymours. Dun, dun, dun. And the reason that he's doing that is because he, he has a hot spot for Jane Seymour. He says at one part, I can't remember where it is in the book, he says, basically it's the gods that, please God, can I not just have this small pale woman or something like that? Basically a bit kind of like, oh, you know, that's not really that guilty, is it? You know, my wife's passed on and just her will be okay. Obviously what we see, or what we will see in history, is that actually, unfortunately for him, <laughs> the king, <laughs> the king also likes Jane Seymour, so that's not going to be good news oh, for man. Thomas Cromwell. I guess he can play rock, paper, scissors, or flip yeah. the coin or something. <laughs> so basically he's going to get cock-blocked by the king. Unfortunately, and what's, <laughs> the also, what's really unfortunate for him is Jane Seymour actually becomes like the best wife. Unfortunately, she also dies. Um, but she's really good because she gives... Henry the son, Edward. But she dies in childbirth, I think, if I remember. But he, he, she goes on to be like the best of his wives. And actually, I think so far to say that he, um, I think when he died, he asked to be, we well, asked, he said that he, he would be married, he'd be buried next to Jane Seymour. So, you know, she goes on to be the kind of big, the big deal. But anyway, that's why Wolf Hall is a title. They, it's, well, that's supposed to just going to be had about World Wolf Hall as a title, but Wolf Hall is the home of the Seymours. Uh, and uh, basically, Cromwell has kind of manufactured that trip to basically be a part of a chance that hopefully he can see Jane. But we know historically, and as we'll see in the sequels, uh, that doesn't quite pan out to how Cromwell had imagined. And that's where the book ends. Yeah, this is a. Uh, it, it gets uh, pretty chaotic here. I think you definitely, if it wasn't obvious already and you hadn't read any history on this I think you kind of figure out who the villains really are um, specifically uh, King Henry and uh, Anne Boleyn uh, in this story um, I know like uh, I recall several scenes or at least one scene but I believe there are multiple where Catherine is you know just really concerned about her daughter and being able to keep her daughter with her or does it keep her with her or for her to maintain oh to maintain her her, uh, I guess, lineage or rights yeah. or, or rights to succession, however you yeah. uh, would phrase that. Um, and how Henry will just kind of make up this contract to make sure everybody's loyal to him after they sort of, uh, you know, abandon the, the Holy Roman em- or the Catholic uh, or the Pope and the wasn't the Holy Roman Empire. It was just Rome, <laughs> the Catholic Church. <laughs> Um, you mentioned something about Cromwell, which kind of sparked something in my mind about just kind of going back to like where Cromwell is from, not necessarily like where he was born or grew up, but like um, uh, his experiences abroad during his younger years. So the time between after he basically ran away from home, went abroad, and before he met Wolsey, where how he got so much different experience, and what that brought to the table. So I believe he spent some time in, in Italy as some sort of merchant or money mover of some sort, 
he spent time in warfare. I think he was fighting for France, and I can't remember if it was a different, if it was multiple or if it was just France. Uh, which some people would use that as like a you know, question about that, like, oh, so you've only fought for one country, have you? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, and, you know, various other jobs, which I think really culminated into his ability to be the, you know, hold, you know, hold all these different positions and tasks and do all these different things for the, for the king. So just that, that experience abroad, you know, had he not had that in his, in his earlier days, uh, who knows if Cromwell could have become the man he ended up becoming or at least obtaining the status and position that he did with the king because, Typically, uh, a commoner does not one day become the right hand of the king, I believe, back in the 1500s in, in uh, England. So, from rags to riches, that is uh, Cromwell's uh, uh, story for sure. And uh, last thing I have is just on sort of Moore's position. I felt like throughout this entire time, where there, uh, so he ultimately ended up, you know, before his ex- execution, ended up in the Tower, which is... That's like the the British version of Siberia. <laughs> I feel like it's like <laughs> or you're going to the tower now. You'll be locked up. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, so uh, so Cromwell would often uh, visit Moore while he was up there, try to convince him or at least understand more, like uh, about what Moore is thinking. It's like you can say these things. Uh, but why don't you just, you know, you can see things for as they are. I think you mentioned the quote. I don't quite remember what it is. Like, he is the king, but I will, don't agree to the other part. That was sort of the mentality in most of his, uh, I think that illustrates most of his uh, his, uh, his uh, responses to any question that um, Cromwell would pose to him when he was trying to basically you know, save him from himself in a way. Like just, you know, you don't even have to believe it. Just sign the the agree or the the agreement of succession, or I can't remember exactly what the document was called, but what the king wanted, wanted everybody to sign to sign their loyalty. And the act of succession. Act of succession. Yeah. But more just wanted to stick to his principles, and uh, it's also kind of gets into the mind of. Uh, Cromwell a little bit because Cromwell is willing to sort of just, you know, say whatever is expedient, you know, into his life. I, mean, I don't think he really cared that much in this case, like signing a, an act of succession, but perhaps in other ways because he didn't understand Moore's position. It's sort of a principled position where he would not betray the, like the Catholic Church or his virtues and, and morals and everything. So, uh, interesting thought is I don't know what. You know, to ask yourself what you would have done, I think I, I probably would have signed it, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I can still go home and believe what I believe. Just, I want to live. <laughs> I mean, again, that was one of those things I remember in class when it was like, all oh, the people got like, burnt at the stake for being heretics and stuff. I just remember people in yeah, class going like, why didn't they just say... Why didn't they just yeah. say that they were that? And I think well, the answer was, but they thought they would go to hell if they said it. 
True, so, yeah, yeah. So it was quite, they were thought they were doomed. The... <laughs> yeah, they thought they were going to be doomed, yeah. so it wasn't quite easy. I do think what you say is really interesting, and I, I think this is, whilst I'd said that the book portrays more like negatively, I do think there is something about the presentation of him and Wolsey in the position of like, you know what, no, we're not really signed up to this, and the king has his rights to do stuff, but there are some things that are just right and wrong according to the kind of virtues that they had, of course, the morality that they set under under Catholicism. But they aren't even under great difficulty for themselves, being cast out, famished, and basically both kind of led to death, in, in, in directly perhaps in Moore's case, where he just sort of just is old and dies, and Moore quite directly is executed. There's something that strikes you a bit more authentic about it, actually, in the light of it all, and then you see, say, Cranmer, who's a bit kind of like, oh, well, I've actually got a wife, but, you know, on the lowdown. And then Cromwell <laughs> is like, well, oh, you know, he's saying to, like, Mary, you don't actually have to like Anne Boleyn, just, like, pretend you do, you know, just make an appearance of it. You know, there's something about it that you kind of actually start to get a bit of a nuanced position there, which is like, hmm, actually, you know what, these people are, they are maybe it's a bit more to them, and, you know, we disagreed with him on some other things here, but actually he's kind of going out and he's not taking the really kind of expedient option there which is to kind of say yes he's he just genuinely doesn't believe this should be the case and even to his own death he's willing to kind of go and say that so it does strike about his character yeah even though he was willing to do horrendous things but just not that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the hierarchy of kind of like bad things you know, kind of like oh we can sort of do this thing for the new church but oh, you know uh well, we can't do X, Y, Z, but I can have a little wife or something on the side. Wars is kind of like, oh, I can take this money and do a little bit of stuff, you know, for my own thing, but I'm, I'm not going to be totally signed up to it. I think, to be fair with Wolsey, I think he did try to do stuff to get the annulment, but I don't think his heart was in it. I think Thomas More was more radical against it. I think, actually, if I'm right, I'm thinking More is actually a now a Catholic saint. I can't remember if that's right or not. Um, I might have to go and look that up. Yeah, I'm not let that up. He's like venerated as a kind of basically, you know, like defending the faith in difficult times uh, in Catholicism. Obviously, what also happens, of course, in this period is Mary is a really staunch Catholic. And when Henry dies, we're going to see the country lurch back to like quite extreme Catholicism, like very quickly. Mm. Um, so there's a sense of just kind of turbulence just generally in this air. But I did think that's an interesting point that you raised about. Um, the dynamic about you know being able to just go out to bat for something you don't really believe and just oh, you just say it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe back then, who knows? But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd rather not be put to the test. <laughs> yeah, they would have probably thought, well, I, I can save myself a bit of pain on this planet on Earth, but I've got a lifetime of torture in hell for being a heretic. For about saying that, do you know what I mean? So I think that's kind of how he yeah. saw it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was quite that that easy. But you know, there's other countries where you know, for example, where the um, uh, in the Middle East where Muhammad um, uh, spread the Muslim Empire at that time, and you had then the Ottomans took over later on. You still had Islam there, but you had um, you had the say non-Muslims would be taxed higher. I think that's how it worked, and. There was a bit of a, an economic incentive to convert to Islam, and mm-hmm. so you had lots of Christians actually convert to Islam for what ostensibly might have seen financial reasons. 
So the idea that that was yeah, always yeah. the case, and actually that's not that much further after that period. I mean, Muhammad's stuff is earlier than that, but the Ottomans are kind of stretched probably just after this period. I, would have thought, I can't quite remember all that, how that plays out. Yeah, anyway, just, just an interesting idea. Yeah, well, that's... Uh... That leaves us with the uh, 